Well, good morning, church. Morning, guests. We're grateful that you've joined together with us this morning to uh, consider the word of the Lord and uh, to praise the Lord of the word. And so uh, I want to invite you to open up, if you have a Bible, to Genesis chapter 11. If you don't have one, there should be a black hardcover Bible on your chair, on your neighbor's chair, under your chair. Grab that. You're going to need it. Uh, We want to consider God's Word together and uh, see what we have to learn, to see what we have uh, to believe, to see what we have to do in light of this text. And so let me uh, read this text. We are finishing, uh, closing down our series through Genesis 1 through 11, and we are finishing chapter 11 this morning, but we're not done there. We got to keep going. Uh, Genesis 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 10, it says, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arkpeshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arkpeshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arkpeshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arkpeshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Ru had lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor, and Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But... When they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Would you pray once more with me? Father God, we ask for your help this morning in considering a text uh, that likely many of us have, if not skipped over, skimmed over. Uh, And yet, God, there is something for us to learn from these words. There are truths embedded in here that can greatly impact our life. And so, God, I pray that each of us, whether we are a believer who come here week in and week out to hear these words of life, to be encouraged again by them, or whether we have come here through an invitation uh, of another as an unbeliever, and have yet to put our faith and trust in you, I pray that we would listen to what you have to say to us this morning and that you would speak as only you can to our hearts to bring change. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Well, those of you who have been traveling along in Genesis with us, uh, you have had your fair share of genealogies up to this point. You, you are, you're, you're beginning to get to that professional level of being able to handle a genealogy. You, you know how to read through it. You know what to look for in those genealogies. You may even be so far that you're like, you know what, I'm not going to skip them anymore. I'm not even going to skim them. I'm going to actually try next time I get to a genealogy somewhere else in the Bible and and put forth the effort to be able to see uh, what the Lord has for us there. Uh, And we're going to do that same thing in this passage uh, because I think the Lord has has much for us here. Uh, And we are uh, coming up on really the end of this major section of Scripture, Genesis 1 through 11, really specifically through verse 26. Um, And right there in verse 26 and and 27, you have this major transition uh, that's going to happen. We're going to get a taste of it next week in Genesis 12. And then after that, we're going to summarize the next 38 chapters uh, maybe 39 chapters, with four portraits of kind of the, the individuals who uh, are in those, those chapters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But this passage, getting to that point, leads us up there and really is setting the stage. And I think after just a quick read-through right there, you may have even sensed the hopelessness that's found in those verses. And I want you to consider the hopelessness that, that they found themselves as we go through this text, not only physically, but the hopelessness they found uh, in themselves spiritually. And, and let's pause for just a second to remind ourselves, as good as some of us may have it, there are often times where the true hopelessness that we find in the world becomes more evident in our own life. Uh, broken relationships, sinful consequences, uh, death, like we read about in this passage. There are times when uh, hopelessness, darkness, despair seem to uh, be creeping in even closer to us than we feel. If you're a Christian here, you remember a moment in your life where you realize that apart from God, you were utterly hopeless, and that when you would die here on this earth, you wouldn't be spending eternity with God forever in heaven with eternal life. You, because of your sin against God, would be spending eternity separated from God in hell, in eternal death. And it was at that moment of hopelessness that someone, by God's grace, preached the good news to you. You heard about a way that was made, uh, that God sent his one and only son to die on the cross for you, to make a way for you in the midst of hopelessness and despair, for you to have a way made for you to be able to be with God forever to not spend eternal death separated from God in hell, but to enjoy eternal life with God forever in heaven. It is that that great reversal, that that moment of reconciliation between you and God, that moment that you were brought from darkness to light, from death to life. And, And in this passage, I believe that the Lord is setting up the stage for uh, that the, the beginning works of that good news. This, a great reversal in the life of these people in Genesis 11 and, and eventually on in, into, verse tw- into chapter 12. And I think that this picture, this setting of the stage is like another setting of the stage that comes hundreds and thousands of years later. And so let's look at it. Let's look at it together. If you're taking notes this morning, and I, I hope you will, I encourage you to do so, so that these things don't just become uh, things that you attempt to remember, but can go back and look at later on. Uh, if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to note in the first uh, 17 verses that man is fruitful, but life is short. Man is fruitful, 
but life is short. Some of you may remember, or you've seen on the screen uh, this morning that we have entitled this series uh, in Genesis 1 through 11, Creation, Curse, and Covenant. And we chose those words specifically because of what God um, was trying to tell us as Moses was writing these words down so long ago, to tell us of God's creation, to tell us that he had made man in his image. And one of the very first things that he told him was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Unfortunately, they, uh, they didn't do that. They chose to attempt to become like God themselves, Adam and Eve, and they ate of the fruit and they sinned against God. And from that came the, the fall of mankind, the brokenness of the world. That's how sin entered the world. And yet from there, the Lord made a promise to redeem and to reconcile and to put an end to um, the one who allowed darkness to enter, Satan himself, to crush the head of Satan. And so Genesis 1 through 11 is really a story of not only God's creation, but of, of a curse, a curse because of sin, uh, but not only a curse, a promise, a covenant a covenant of salvation, a covenant that things would not always be broken. Things would not always be uh, hopeless in the end. And God is making right on that covenant, on that promise, and continuing to add new layers and new covenants and new promises to those old promises. And, and that's what we're getting ready for, getting ready to set the stage for. But that first command that God gave them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, those of you who have been with us, we've seen that these people just didn't do that. Uh, rather than uh, being fruitful and, and having children and raising them in the knowledge and, and understanding and faith and obedience of the Lord, they had children, but they allowed them to live in sinful ways. And rather than spreading out and filling the earth with the glory of God, they congregated together and uh, built towers together and cities together to try to huddle up together, which is when God spread them out over the face of the earth. That's what we saw last week in Genesis 11, 1 through uh, verse 9, them building the Tower of Babel and God coming down and confusing their language and dispersing them throughout. But then we begin to read in 11 and in verse 10, another genealogy. And we had just looked at a genealogy in chapter 10, and it's a very similar genealogy, that of uh, Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth in Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. And we get some of the very same names. But if Genesis chapter 10 is a... Um, a typical family tree, if you will, kind of starting in Noah, having Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then all of their kids underneath them. You can kind of see that uh, downward family tree. Genesis chapter 11, though it has some of the same names, is a single branch of that large family tree. And what's happening is God... Uh, is trying to narrow our focus down onto a specific individual, an individual that he's chosen to use to bring about blessing for all nations. And, and that one person will see, and you probably, probably may know from, from even just our reading, was Abram, later called Abraham. And so when we read in verse 10 of chapter 11, these are the generations of Shem, we have that phrase that introduces a new section of Genesis every time. These are the generations. Uh, that's that Hebrew word toledot. These are the generations and specifically of Shem. And it says when Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arkpashad. And we have here a historical marker, two years after the flood. So we know when this started, when Shem started to have children. And we know uh, here in this single branch of this larger family tree, who the one son of Shem 
is that God is choosing to, to use and to focus on. And, and as I told you in, in some of the past genealogies, it's important for us to focus on specific names, specific numbers, specific notes, uh, and even nuances in genealogies to be able to uh, see what the Lord might have for us. And so some of these names are important in, in this section. Some of them are the same. They may have sound, sounded familiar all the way up to Peleg in uh, verse 18. But after Peleg, we begin to get new people introduced to us. Ru, Sarag in verse 22, Nahor in 24, Terah in 26, as well as Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So we have some of the same people, but we also have new people that are being introduced to us. Uh, we, we, you may remember Shem. His name literally means name. And, and so here we have uh, a genealogy that included Shem before Genesis 11, a, a genealogy that includes Shem after Genesis 11, focusing here on the on Shem's descendants, this specific line all the way down. But one thing we need to note is that uh, in, in this, not only the names, but the numbers. I tried to read it emphatically. Did you notice anything about the amount of years these individuals were living? Did you notice that these years were slowly decreasing in, in number? The length of years that these individuals lived was getting smaller and smaller and smaller, even until we get down to Nahor in verse 25, who lived 119 years. The life expect expectancy of uh, individuals was significant, significantly dropping, especially from years before Noah, who Methuselah lived 969 years. Now we're all the way down to 119 years after their son uh, was born. So you can see not only this fruitfulness of mankind, that they are being fruitful and multiplying, uh, but you also see uh, that life is short. And so even in this passage, though we see mankind doing what they're supposed to be doing, we feel this, this weight, this burden that life is short. Uh, not only do they begin to feel that in these generations, but they feel that throughout all generations. This is why Moses would later write in Psalm 90, in the only psalm that is at least recorded in the book of Psalms by Moses, in verse 12, Moses says, who's writing this, who, who wrote down, remember, all of these genealogies in their decreasing years, Moses prayed to the Lord, teach us to number our days. Why? So that we might get a heart of wisdom. This is why David would pray in Psalm 39 verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes, out, uh, goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. You see, it wasn't just these people in this day and age that understood that life was short. Moses understood these things. He who lived hundreds of years after them. David knew that life was short in light of God's eternal uh, existence. Uh, we too know that life is short. But we don't necessarily feel it like they felt it there. As their generations were getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And we're in a time of history where life expectancy goes up and up and up. And more of you have great grandparents than ever before. 
We think we're invincible. We think nothing's going to slow us down. We think we're never going to get to that point where we, uh, where we die. And yet we need to be reminded again uh, that life is short. We need to be taught and, and pray like Moses prayed. Lord, teach us to number our days. Help us not to live as if we have as many as we want because we don't. Help us to remember that this life is fleeting and every day that we wake up is the Lord's new mercy towards us. That should change the way we live, Christian. That should make us live way more intentionally with the years, the months, the days, the hours that the Lord has given us. If we would live in light of even what's being Um, taught to us even in a genealogy like this. They were fruitful. They were faithful in one aspect of their lives by having children Um, and not just one child, but you see here what's different from uh, a similar genealogy back in Genesis chapter 5, at least in structure. In Genesis chapter 5, the very last phrase of every generation was, and he died, and he died, and he died over and over and over. The, 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 the point in that genealogy was that death is coming. But here we see uh, the end of every generation here. The focus is that they had other sons and daughters, other sons and daughters, and yet their life expectancy is going shorter and shorter and shorter. So it's more important even be more faithful to the Lord in the time that they were given. Man is fruitful, but life is short. So there was an expectancy. There was an urgency that was needed in this generation. And yet the Lord is also singling out his sovereign choice by whom he is going to bless and also bless the entire world. So secondly... Noting that man is fruitful and that life is short, we jump then to verse 27, a a new narrative-like genealogy that gives us a little bit more details and zooms in into uh, really just a couple generations there. And though man is fruitful, and we note also life is short in in that first section, I want you to note here in just the first couple verses in 27 and 28, that sometimes life is shorter than we expect. Life is short. We need to note that. There was a decreasing age in that first genealogy, but sometimes life is even shorter than the life expectancy we expect to live. Look at that. We see that in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Again, this is just another one of the, I believe, ten markers in Genesis highlighting new sections with that word, that Hebrew word toledot in verse 27. Now these are the generations, and where verse 10 spoke about the generations of Shem, here Moses is writing in a narrative form about the generations of Terah. We saw Terah introduced in 26, but now Moses is going to give us a little bit more info. It says that Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And it goes to the next level, the next generation, and tells us that Haran fathered Lot. If you know your, your Bible, if you know the book of Genesis, you know that Moses is preparing us for some of the stories that uh, are to come ahead. But then in verse 28, we have this. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. Sometimes life is, we know life is short, but sometimes life is even shorter than we expected. Here, not only does the Lord tell us that Terah had three sons, but he tells us that one of his sons had another son. Haran fathered Lot. And Haran 
After he had had his child, he died while his father was still living. Isn't this one of the greatest fears of us who are fathers, for our sons to go ahead of us in death, for uh, our children to precede us in, in that way? We always think, we expect, if you will, that uh, our fathers will go before us in death and that we'll live long after that. But that's just not the case. Some of you, even in my, fam- my own family, have had um, uh, children who have gone before their fathers and mothers. You think about this. You may know people who have lost children, children in the womb, children in birth, um, children in childhood, children even ad- in adulthood. This passage is, is, again, reminding us that things are not as they should be. And yet, this isn't even the first time that this has happened. If you were to do the math of the genealogy that we saw just previously, you would realize that because of the decreasing life expectancy and, and decrease in years that people were living, Shem saw the death of his own son, Arkpashad. Eber who is the father of the Hebrews, he saw the death of his own son Peleg. Sarag saw the death of his son Nahor, and now Terah sees the death of his son Haran. We're reminded that death is a result of sin. Sin that came about from Adam and Eve long ago in the Garden of Eden. And that death is having its way on the earth and is creeping in closer and closer to home than anybody would like it. And that the amount of years are getting shorter and shorter and shorter in this. Life is short, but sometimes life is shorter than we expect it. And like I said, some of you have experienced this. Or you may know someone who has experienced this. And you know the hopelessness that they felt in those moments when they lost someone um, who shouldn't have gone before them. Tragically. Unexpectedly. Uh, I watched parents go through this many years ago as a youth pastor when their son was tragically killed in a car wreck. Uh, right after graduation and watch the hopelessness that they experienced in that moment apart from the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to feel that in this moment. And yet, as Christians, we know that there there is good news, that there is hope. And yet there is brokenness, there is hurt, there is pain that is being described in these passages. But it's not just that life is shorter than we expect. Sometimes life is harder than we expect. Look at verse 29. It says that uh, Abram and Abram and Nahor took wives. Remember their brother Haran had passed away. So the other two brothers, they took wives themselves. And the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, who was the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah, Abram's brother who had passed away. And now Sarai, we see in verse 30, was barren, and she had no child. You see, life is short. And sometimes life is shorter than we expect it, and sometimes life is harder than we expect it. For Abram and Sarah, it was impossible to have children. Not just hard, but harder than they expected and, and downright impossible, apart from the Lord, for them to have children. And, and I want you to consider the what Abram and Sarai, his wife, know. They know the genealogy preceding them. They know the decreasing years that are the the ceiling that they're nearing sooner and sooner and sooner. They know, too, that that life is hard and sometimes life is shorter than they expect it. And they, they don't have very long 
any days even guaranteed to be able to have children. So you can imagine the, the weight and the burden that Abram and, and Sarah are feeling. You can imagine the despair that Moses is trying to communicate in this passage th- that uh, father has son and even more sons and daughters. Father has a son and even more sons and daughters. Father has a son and even more sons and daughters. Over and over and over, Abram marries Sarai and they have no children. Imagine just the, the hurt and the silence and the hopelessness and the darkness that uh, Moses is trying to communicate that Abram and Sarai feel. You may know that type of feeling. Even uh, in your own families, uh, being without children for a certain amount of time. Um, or know others who have experienced that. But it's not just in being childless, it's um, in every aspect of life that, that it's hard. It's harder to be fruitful and faithful to the Lord. It's harder to do life in the midst of a sinful and broken world. Things aren't as they should be. And this passage seems to be uh, setting the stage, but it's a pretty dark stage. It's almost like lights spotlighting a stage full of activity and slowly but surely lights begin to shut off and chances begin to disappear for something to happen on on the stage that's before us. Life is harder than they expected in this. Not only does barrenness show up in this story, but barrenness shows up in many of the stories that are to follow in Genesis, a sign that, uh, that the setting of the stage is the setting of the stage for God to do something in the midst of short lives, in the midst of hard situations. But not only is life shorter than expected, not only is life harder than expected, but sometimes life feels farther, than, farther from God than we expect. Look at verse 31. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran. Remember, Haran had died. And so his grandfather takes him with his son, Abram. Uh, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans, to go into the land of Canaan. Ur of the Chaldeans was, was in the far east, uh, near modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. This, this is where they were living during that, that day and age. And yet, uh, Terah saw fit to leave there and to go west. To go west towards the land of Canaan. And again, if you've been with us, you remember who Canaan is. Canaan is the son of Ham who was cursed by God and and Noah because of the sin of his father Ham uh, against Noah. It was Canaan and his descendants who would become the enemies of the nation of Israel, who lived in a specific area of the world in Palestine that eventually God would promise to Israel and that they would have to go in and fight these people there. And so Terah was leaving his home and traveling from there back towards the west, back towards the land of Canaan from where they had been dispersed. Now, at some level, that that seems hopeful because we've talked about throughout this series that uh, after Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden in the east of the garden. And several times over, when people are moving east, they're moving away from the Lord. Uh, Even in uh, Babel, where they built the Tower of Babel, in the east, they were moving away from the Lord. Well, here you have Terah who's going back west. And it almost 
seems as if he's going back towards the Lord. But then you read uh, that phrase right in the end of verse 32, but he was moving west. He was going back towards the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And that phrase, settled there, should be on the back of our mind as well because at the beginning of the description of the people building the Tower of Babel, uh, they were moving, moving east, albeit, but in the end of verse 2, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. Terah was moving west. He was moving towards the land of Canaan, towards uh, the Lord, if you will, but he got to Haran and began to settle there. Now, we don't know what stopped him. We don't know why he didn't continue in that direction. Uh, we know that Haran was an important crossroads uh, and commercial center in the ancient Near East, uh, in northern Mesopotamia, kind of modern-day Turkey. And so he was making his way from the east, kind of northwest up to that point, but never made it all the way to the land of Canaan. And in his settling, this is how he's described by Joshua uh, generations later in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. And Joshua said to all people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, essentially in, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. It seems as if Terah was making his way west, moving nearer and nearer to the Lord, but he settled in Haran and there he worshipped false gods. There he gave his life not to the one true and living God, but uh, to all of the other gods of, of the world. But this is what many of us have felt at different times as well, that, that in a place like Haran, uh, we feel very far from the Lord. We can't see his activity. We can't hear his voice. We see all of the other gods of the world and they look pretty good and we decide, you know what? I can't hear God. I don't see him doing much around me. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. I'm going to try that. I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to enjoy that. Rather than doing what we know we ought to do to pursue the Lord. And the Lord feels further than we expect. We feel like we're farther than him than we expected we would feel when we went this direction. He even was going west. He was going that direction. Maybe you, you you've tried it before. You're like, I've gone to church and yet I still feel like the Lord is far. I feel further from the Lord in going to church than I do when I didn't go to church. I would encourage you in those moments to press on. And yet this is the stage that the Lord has set for what's to happen in Genesis chapter 12. This is the, the stage. It doesn't seem all that great though. With a de decreasing life expectancy in that first genealogy with sons dying before their fathers with other sons being orphaned and left to be cared for by grandfathers and uncles, with husbands and wives not being able to have children, with people and individuals feeling very far from God, the stage almost seems black in that moment. It seems pretty hopeless. And yet that's just the kind of situation that God uses to magnify himself and to bring about his sovereign plan of salvation. That's just the kind of situation that God uses to uh, show his blessing to all of the nations of the world. Because when he shows up in that kind of a situation, it's he who gets the glory, not anybody else. It's he who is on display uh, and, and that is bringing hope 
It's he who's on display and is bringing life. It's he who's on display uh, and bringing all the blessings of the world. And not just for one. And not just for one family. But for all the nations of the world. This is what we see happen in the coming chapter of Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to get into it in the next week, but I just want to kind of show you the trajectory of this passage that we have here in this. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's a a chapter that describes some of the, uh, if you will, heroes of our faith, but it describes what faith really is. In verse eleven, in, in chapter eleven, verse one and two, it says, "Excuse me." It says in uh, chapter eleven, verse one and two, the writer of Hebrews writes, "Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation." The writer of Hebrews describes faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what was needed in the midst of that dark situation at the end of Genesis chapter 11 is faith. There was nothing that could be seen, nothing good that could be seen, nothing sure that could be hoped for uh, in in that moment, uh, at least with the eyes And the writer of Hebrews goes on to describe Abraham as a man of faith. He says that by faith, in that moment, in in Genesis chapter 11, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went, not knowing where he was going. You see, Abraham is... The one, the, the one that God chose to call out from the east to go west, to even go with his father uh, on his way towards the land of Canaan. And it, the Bible says that Abraham went not by anything that his eyes could see that showed promise, not anything that was really all that hopeful through his mind's sake, but because of the call of the Lord, that he went. He left his home in in the Ur of the Chaldeans, and he went towards the west, and he went by faith. In fact, this uh, this same situation, this same moment in history was recalled by a man named Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And when he writes about this story, he says this, when speaking to a large crowd of of Jews, of Hebrews in Jerusalem, he says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. When it was dark, when it was hopeless, when he couldn't have children, when his brother had died, when there was no hope, the Lord reached in and called him. When it was all but death left for Abraham to have in Ur, the Lord looked down and spoke and called him out. Stephen goes on and says that he said, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. And then he went. He went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land which you are now living. God took, in the midst of this hopeless situation, In the midst of this dark stage that had been set, he reaches down, he looks down, he shines the light of his glory into that situation, and he calls Abram out. And Abram goes by faith. He couldn't see. He didn't know where he was even going. God didn't even tell him where he was going. He just said, go. 
He just said, follow me. I'll lead you where I am going. And he went and he walked by faith. And his faith uh, led to obedience, obedience to go, obedience to trust. And he went. In a moment when life was short, shorter than expected, harder than expected, and it seemed that he was farther from God than he expected, he would follow by faith in obedience And the Lord would eventually promise him that land. And not only that land, but he would promise Abram a family with his own children in that place. And not only a land and not only a family, but the blessing that only can come from the Lord in that place. He would have a son named Isaac, who would have a son named Jacob, Jacob, who would have 12 sons, who became the 12 tribes of Israel, who would eventually number millions and millions in Egypt, where they were delivered out of slavery to go live in the land that was promised to Abraham. In the midst of that dark and hopeless Far from the Lord's situation, the Lord delivered him and made a nation of him and saved him and blessed him. And if the Lord could do it then, he can do it again. And in fact, he has done it again. He he has brought hope into a hopeless situation. And this situation in Genesis chapter 11 seems a lot like the situation uh, that that is described before the birth of Christ. After Israel went into the promised land, um, after Moses died, Joshua led them into the promised land. They made that place their home, the land of Canaan. They cast out all the enemies that were there, though they didn't destroy them all. Uh, And slowly but surely, unfortunately, they rebelled against the Lord time and time again. And God sent prophet after prophet warning them to turn back to the Lord. To return to the word of the Lord. To repent of their sin. To destroy their idols. To walk by faith that leads to obedience. He had called them over and over and over and yet they never ultimately turned. And so the the Lord allowed them to be taken as slaves into Babylon, the very place where Abraham lived early on in life. By God's grace, God eventually allowed them to go back to Jerusalem, but they continued to rebel against the prophets of God who were warning them and leading them back to the Lord himself. And so, the Lord went silent. The Lord went silent for 400 years. For 400 years, the Lord didn't speak through any individual man with a specific word from the Lord. Silence. Darkness. Hopelessness. Much like the hundreds of years that Uh, preceded Abraham's life and yet it was in that moment that God sovereignly chose to enter into the world by sending his one and only son to another couple who um, were unexpecting of children not because of barrenness this time uh, but because they were yet to be married virgin virgins who who had yet to be married he gave them his one, uh, Mary, his one and only son, and he was born in Bethlehem, and he grew in the favor and stature of the Lord, and he would live a perfect and sinless and righteous life, all the while urging people to repent of their sin and believe in him for their salvation. And some would repent. Some would see the light that had shone in the darkness and would repent of their sins and believe and would follow him would even give their lives for him. But many would not. Many would reject him, just like they rejected all of the prophets before. And this is why in that same speech that Stephen was giving uh, to those Jews in Jerusalem, 
after Jesus had died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. The same speech where Stephen brings up God and his glory appearing to Abraham and calling him to go out from that dark place and to follow him by faith and obedience. In that very same speech, he closes by rebuking the people that he was speaking to. And he rebukes them because they had rejected not only all of the prophets that he had sent to them, but his one and only son. Listen to how he ends that sermon. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. That is Jesus Christ. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is the situation that Stephen brings up the life of Abraham in the starting of his sermon. He brings it up because as great uh, as a work that God did in that day with Abraham, as dark as it was before and as hopeless as it was before, contrasted with the, how bright it was after, how hopeful it was afterwards, after God called Abram out and he walked by faith and he gave him a son who had a son, who had many sons, who became a nation. As great as that was, as great as that work of God was, they rejected all of the prophets that came after him. And the generation that Stephen was living in was no different. As dark as things were before, in the silence of 400 years without a word from the Lord, as hopeless as they were, as Jews, to be able to see their Messiah come in that moment. And as bright as the glory of God shone uh, in the heavens, uh, with the angels in the sky, with the birth of the Messiah in Jesus Christ, instead of following by faith, they rejected. They rejected not only the prophets before him, but they rejected Jesus and though he had done nothing wrong, though he had said nothing wrong, though he was not a threat to himself, his followers, or anybody else, they arrested him, they crucified him, and they buried him. And yet, on the third day, he rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead to offer eternal life in, in in the midst of a situation where life is short, Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead to offer eternal life. And in a situation when life was harder than expected, he promised to bear the burdens of all who would come to him and follow him. And in a situation where people felt further from God than ever, if they would simply repent and believe, they would find that they were actually nearer to God than they could have ever been. And so we have great opportunity to apply this truth to our life. As Christians, we ought to pray daily. Lord, teach us to number our days. Let us remember that life is short. Sometimes shorter than expected. Sometimes harder than expected. Sometimes further from God than expected. But let us remember what the Word of the Lord has said, that it's in darkness that light has shone. Light has shone in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Let's trust Him. Let's walk by faith in things that are unseen, in the conviction of the things that are hoped 
for. Let's walk by faith. Let's number our days. Let's walk in obedience until um, un- until we be able to enjoy the abundant life that the Lord gives us. Until we enjoy the eternal life that He has for us. Until some of those burdens are removed as the Lord carries them for us. Until the Lord feels nearer to us. Let's walk by faith until He does. But if you've come here this morning and you have yet to put your faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you've yet to repent of your sins and confess them to the Lord and trust Him to save you in the end. I want to encourage you. In a moment when you feel far from the Lord, in a time when you feel the weight of your own sin, and you realize that it's nearly impo- it is impossible for you to be able to overcome the, the weight of your sin to be able to enter into eternal life with God forever on your own. In a time when you don't know how many days you have before you, know this, that the Lord has numbered your days. And yet He has made a way for you to have the burden of your sin fall off your back. In fact, the Bible says that He took it upon His own back. He took your burden for sin and died for you in your place so that you wouldn't have to. So that through repentance of sin and belief in Jesus Christ, even if your days are shorter than you expect it, you will have eternal days with Him forever in heaven. And even if your life is hard here on this earth, know that it will be even that more joyful in, in heaven and full in heaven. And know that this through belief in Jesus Christ, even though you may f- feel far from God, God, through faith, sends His very own Spirit to be with all of those of us who have believed. And He's not far from you. You can have that hope. You can have that good news in the midst of whatever dark situation you find yourself in. And I urge you to, to seek it out through repentance and faith this morning in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us this morning as believers. Stop for a moment just to consider how short life really is. 70, 80, maybe if we're lucky, 120 years on this earth. And yet that is but a drop in the ocean compared to the eternity that you have lived in the past. Uh, The eternity that uh, we could experience with you in heaven if we would only believe. God, I pray that in the midst of hard times that some may be facing this morning, that as a believer they would remember that you've promised that if they would only come to you, you would, and take their yoke upon you, take your yoke upon them, God, it would be easy and light because you would be the one to take it for them. For the person who is yet to believe in you, God, I pray that they would feel the burden of their sin, that they would feel the, the impossibility of enjoying eternal life with you in heaven apart from faith. And that this morning they would repent and believe. God, I pray that all of us would experience and be reminded of the nearness of you, even in times when it would be easy and Satan would tempt us to believe that you are far from us. Let us remember that you are not far from any who seek you. And so God, help us. I thank you for setting the stage for you to show your might and your power, to magnify yourself, to show your gracious, sovereign plan of salvation. 
to shine the light in the darkness. And God, I pray that our eyes would be aware of it even this morning, even more so than when we came into this place. And that we would sing uh, believing more, trusting more, remembering again, being filled with joy, being filled with hope that only comes through faith in you. Father, we love you. Jesus, we thank you. Spirit, we need you. And we pray in the name that is above every name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.